Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basplega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So in order to discuss antimicrobial optimization in the critically ill, it's important for us to provide some amount of review of the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic aspects that make up the important aspects of uh, optimization in this patient population. Remember that pharmacokinetics of an antimicrobial serve as the basis of our understanding of drug exposure. And usually we think of this as administration, distribution, metabolism, and elimination. The pharmacodynamics, however, broadly describe effects on a given target. Perhaps this is a cell receptor that mediates a pathophysiologic response, or perhaps we're talking about a target that is a bacterial binding protein or a bacterial ribosome, for example. Together, however, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics inform our understanding of the nexus of dosing administration and response. There have been a large number of preclinical studies, as well as clinical studies that have identified unique pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic targets for a number of antibiotics or families of antibiotics. And the interest here is, at least for antimicrobials, bacterial killing. We're talking about antibiotics now, but if we were talking about antifungals, perhaps we might talk about yeast or molds, et cetera. An example of this might be meropenem. So the preclinical studies or the in vitro animal models would support a time of 40% above the minimum inhibitory concentration as the target. Clinical studies that have looked at this have shown a more conservative target of 75% of the time above the MIC for the dosing interval. There are a number of assessments, both preclinical and and clinical, that can be evaluated across, again, families of antibiotics or antibiotics themselves. Before we get into that specifically, I think it's important for us to specifically define what those aspects are that lead to pharmacokinetic changes in the critically ill population. And this table is meant to provide uh, an overarching view of what these are, and we'll spend some additional time after this slide going into some a little bit more detail. But first for the overview, if we look at this table by row, the first you see is listed as the change is hemodynamics. And if you follow that row over, the effect in change of hemodynamics is increased clearance. Now, largely this is referred to as a hyperdynamic state because this change in hemodynamics really relates to an increased cardiac output. We'll specifically focus on this in the coming slides as this clearly is a very important aspect of the challenges in pharmacokinetics and antimicrobial optimization in the critically ill. The next is altered fluid balance. And this may be third spacing or altered protein binding, particularly for antibiotics, 
that are moderate or highly protein bound. And the net effect here is an increase in volume of distribution. It should be noted that the changes in pharmacokinetics for both the hemodynamic or the hyperdynamic state, as well as altered fluid balance, really yield a decreased plasma concentration. And when you think about pharmacodynamic targets for antibiotics that uh, are incumbent upon a certain level of exposure, you could see how this, these changes in pharmacodynamics may lead to uh, negative outcomes. Also challenging is that some critically ill patients may have no organ dysfunction whatsoever. And this might lead to, as you would expect, the volumes of distribution and clearances that we would anticipate in an otherwise a sick but not critically ill population. And the pharmacokinetics without change would really yield a normal plasma concentration. Moving on to renal or hepatic dysfunction, this could be increased volume of distribution as well as decreased clearance. And the end pharmacokinetic result would be an increased plasma concentration. And at this point, you can see the challenge uh, that's inherent in these pharmacokinetic changes. Because across any critically ill population, you may have one or all of these that may be contributing to changes in pharmacokinetics. So you could have a decrease, you could have ant otherwise normally anticipated pharmacokinetics, or you could have an increase, which again yields the challenge within this population. And lastly, organ support, which is renal replacement therapy or ECMO, which is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, may lead to an effect of increased volume of distribution and possibly increased clearance, which could yield increased or decreased plasma concentrations. So again, a number of factors may be at play within the critically ill population that could significantly change pharmacokinetics of the antimicrobials in question, and by extension, may significantly impact the clinical outcomes and treatment in those patients. Let's get into a little bit more detail with hyperdynamic state. And this is often what people think of when they think of pharmacokinetic changes in the critically ill population. The proposed pathophysiology is not completely understood, but it's proposed that in patients who experience some significant level of trauma, there's a corresponding systemic inflammatory response brought about by inflammatory mediators. The net effect is a decrease in peripheral vascular resistance, yielding an increase in cardiac output. As a result of that increase in cardiac output, we see an increase in renal blood flow which yields an increase in glomerular filtration rate. And that all in total manifests as what's called or what's been coined as augmented renal clearance, otherwise known as ARC. There may be a number of definitions for augmented renal clearance, but one that's frequently coined is a creatinine clearance of greater than or equal to 130 milliliters per minute. The challenge here is that this significantly higher level of glomerular filtration rate would not be normally identified by commonplace indicators of changes in uh, 
creatinine clearance. So, and that's the serum creatinine. And so the net effect then for a patient who has augmented renal clearance would be um, decreased plasma concentrations, which would yield what we would deem as underdosing despite using a standard drug regimen. Moving on to altered fluid balance, this is a further consequence of the systemic inflammatory response brought about by some amount of trauma. And what this is, is fluid extravasation into the interstitial space, which is commonly referred to as third spacing, but as a result of capillary leakage or endothelial damage, again, some of which is brought on by complement activation and systemic, the systemic inflammatory response. The result in clinical effect is hypotension. And the primary team's normal response for that fluid is fluid resuscitation by fluid administration. Unfortunately, this may have a deleterious effect of further increasing interstitial volume. And why that's, inter why that's problematic is an increase, a large increase in interstitial volume may lead to a large increase in volume of distribution. And this is particularly of concern for hydrophilic antibiotics, where this increase in volume of distribution impacts the concentrations of uh, hydrophilic antibiotics. If you were to think about this conceptually, the easiest way to do that is to think about the IV bolus equation, concentration equals dose over volume of distribution. If you're to increase the volume of distribution and the dose would, be, would remain the same, you would have a net result of a decrease concentration. And that's really what's happening in this case. And similar to the hyperdynamic state that we talked about previously, standard regimens uh, may prove inadequate exposure. And again, the result and effect may be poor clinical outcomes. One additional aspect of altered fluid balance that should be discussed is hypoalbuminemia, which is a common disorder in the intensive care unit. Decreased albumin, decreased serum albumin may increase the unbound fraction of drugs that are protein, highly protein bound. And these obviously include antibiotics that we're speaking about. An increased unbound fraction may, at least early in the dosing interval, provide for greater concentrations that may ultimately be available for distribution and subsequent elimination. One common example that's used is ceftriaxone, which may yield low unbound concentrations later in the dosing interval because of the greater availability for distribution and elimination that were brought about early on by the greater unbound fraction. And again, the net result here is an unfavorable exposure, which again may lead to clinical failure. There's also aspects of renal and hepatic dysfunction that extend beyond augmented renal clearance that we've previously discussed. What's contrasted with reduction in kidney perfusion or kidney damage is brought about by acute kidney injury. And so what you have is the opposite effect of what we've discussed with respect to augmented renal clearance. So you now have a decreased clearance of renally eliminated antibiotics and the net effect of an increase in antibiotic exposure. Hepatic dysfunction may decrease drug metabolism and clearance as well, particularly for those drugs that are hepatically eliminated, either 
by majority or in some small part. However, uh, even less is known about these, these cases. And so the limited data leads to limited amounts of uh, guidance with respect to what to do and the adjustments that need to be made in this scenario. And then lastly, we have renal replacement therapy. So there, the scenario of acute kidney injury in the ICU may necessitate uh, the physical removal of waste products and fluid removal by some renal replacement therapy. There are a good number of modalities that have been used and continue to be brought forth in order to achieve this result. But the net effect here may be variable changes in volumes of distribution and drug clearance. And this may yield, by extension, an increase or decrease plasma concentration of our antimicrobials. This is somewhat of a very complex process and is further dependent upon the volume of distribution in question uh, of the antibiotic that we're talking about, as well as the lipophilicity of that drug and associated protein binding. So in, in totem, you can see the large number of challenges that are associated with pharmacokinetic changes um, due to the pathophysiology in critically ill patients. And Dr. Pearson will continue the discussion in respect to the evidence in support of antimicrobial optimization. Great. Thank you so much, Brian. That was an excellent overview of what is going on in the critically ill patient in terms of antimicrobial dosing. Now, I'm going to spend my portion of the talk today specifically talking about the antimicrobials themselves and specifically looking at antibiotics, pharmacodynamics, and how we can optimize those in the critically ill. So I think everybody or most people that are listening in on this session are familiar with this graphic that's been adapted from a great 2004 review on antibiotic pharmacodynamics, uh, looking at one dose of any antimicrobial agent and then how different antibiotics work in different ways to uh, enact, enter their, uh, enact their mechanism of action and their effect on bacteria. So aminoglycosides are our key uh, antimicrobial agent that exhibit Cmax to MIC um, concentration-dependent killing. So the higher doses that you give up front, the more impactful they will be in terms of efficacy against bac bacteria. Whereas your AUC to MIC drugs, so that's total drug exposure, are drugs like vancomycin and fluoroquinolones. And we've seen that with more recent vancomycin guidelines, switching from trough-based monitoring to AUC-based monitoring, where trough was always a surrogate, and we'll get into that a little bit later today. But I, I want to start a little bit today by talking about our beta-lactams, which our beta-lactams in particular are time over MIC antibiotics. So I actually, I should probably back up for a quick second and define MIC as your minimum inhibitory concentration. It's the lowest concentration that an antimicrobial can have uh, in the body at the site of infection to still inert or uh, have its activity. So beta-lactams, the longer you are above that MIC, the more impactful they will be and the more effective they can be. So you don't necessarily need to push dosing up front, but instead giving them frequently over or over prolonged infusions to make sure that time over the MIC is extended. We will also talk a little bit about what's kind of as a, a side part here on this graph is that post-antibiotic effect you see on the far right there. So even after an antibiotic falls below the minimum inhibitory concentration, there are certain antibiotics that can still have an impact. 
So let's go into just a little bit, a, a nice visual of the difference between concentration versus time-dependent killers in terms of antibiotics. So concentration-dependent killer like an aminoglycoside versus time-dependent like a beta-lactam. This is from a seminal 1998 paper that you can see here. They took one aminoglycoside, quinolone, and beta-lactam and exposed bacteria to different concentrations of each of these agents. In the furthest left in the middle graph, aminoglycosides being concentration-dependent versus quinolones being AUC or total exposure-dependent, you can see as the concentrations of antibiotic go up, your bacterial burden goes down with each concentration increase, with aminoglycosides being the most prominent. But then if you look at beta-lactams on the far right here, the beta-lactam component, when you go went up on concentration, quadrupling 16 times, 64 times the MIC, you don't necessarily see more bacterial killing with pushing those doses higher. Really, when it comes to time-dependent killers, it's better to be longer over the MIC rather than pushing doses way above the MIC initially. So let's demonstrate, demonstrate that in some uh, target attainment PK studies. This was two separate studies, one looking at Piperacillin tazobactam and the other looking at cefepime that showed very similar results in terms of prolonged infusion beta-lactams. I'll orient you to the graph on the left here first, being Piperacillin tazobactam. You can see here where my red arrow is, is at an MIC of 8. So if you have an elevated enterobacterialis with an MIC of 8, if you do a prolonged infusion Piptazo of 3.375 Q8 hours over 4 hours, you have basically 100 to 99% target attainment probability. Versus if you gave more medication, our normal dosing of 3.375 Q6 over a 30-minute infusion, you're only looking at around 70% target attainment. So while you're reducing the total amount of grams given per day of Piptazo with a four-hour infusion every eight hours, you are having a much higher likelihood of success against organisms with an elevated MIC. Now you can see if your MIC is one or two, it likely doesn't make a difference if you have a prolonged infusion. But when you're treating empirically in a critically ill patient, you can't take that chance. I'd much rather have 99 to 100% target attainment probability versus 70% any day of the week. So I will be prolonged infusing my piptorosone tazobactam in critically ill patients if it's needed. Similarly, on the right, uh, another study, PK study, looking at probability of target attainment was done with cefepime. These numbers are a little, or these lines are a little closer together than the pronounced uh, difference in piptazo, but it will take the same MIC. Say you have an MIC of 8 with E. coli. And looking again where that red arrow is, if you have a dose of 2 grams Q8, so pushing your cefepime to more or less max dosing at our standard FDA-approved uh, uh, infusion time of 30 minutes, you're looking at about an 85% target attainment. But if you extend that 30-minute infusion to 180 minutes or 3 hours, that target attainment bumps up to around 95%. So you're improving your target attainment by about 10% by going from a 30-minute infusion to a 180-minute infusion. But let's dive, move away from the PK data and onto some clinical data. Do prolonged infusions actually help patients and their clinical outcomes? Well, we have quite a few different meta-analyses looking at this particular subject. This is my favorite of the group by Vardakis and colleagues, uh, published in 2018. They found that a risk of death in patients with sepsis is reduced by 30%, 30% with prolonged infusion beta-lactams compared to your short-term infusions. And you can see here, 
of the 17 studies that they looked at, there was a lot of heterogeneity among them, but you can see at the very bottom here, your risk ratio of 0.7 uh, with a 95% confidence interval of 0.56 to 0.87 was statistically significantly reduced uh, with prolonged infusions. So I said this was just my favorite meta-analysis. There was also just this past in the last six months, a systematic review of meta-analyses that was done that I've highlighted here, the Vardakis et al. Uh, study that I just mentioned, but you can see across the board, most meta-analyses that have been done, done have shown an improvement in clinical mortality outcomes with prolonged infusion beta-lactams compared to intermittent infusion. Now, a lot of these meta-analyses do have cross crossover in terms of the studies they are looking at, but together, the evidence is pretty clear. Prolonged infusion beta-lactams do improve our survival outcomes in critically ill patients. And there's not a better way to show that prolonged infusions are the right way to do beta-lactams than the way that the FDA approval process has gone in the last five years or so. You can see with miropenem vapor-bactam, which was approved in 2017, the dosing approved by the FDA was four grams administered over three hours every eight hours, and then more recently in November 2019, Cefiterocol was approved for two grams administered over three hours every eight hours. And that Cefiterocol data from the uh, FDA's briefing document provided down below here, you can see if two grams over one hour was infused uh, for Cefiterocol, we would be below the 75% free time over MIC at the six hour mark compared to with two grams over three hours, it is above that goal of what they were looking for, 75% free time over MIC. And remember, beta-lactams are time over MIC antimicrobials. So I wouldn't be surprised if all new beta-lactam antibiotics, unless there's stability concerns, are extended infusion upon approval by the FDA. And we should go back and previously approved FDA antibiotics and critically ill patients be extending these infusions over two to three or sometimes even four hours with Piptaza. I do want to give one quick note. So at Brigham and Women's, where I practice, we've been doing uh, prolonged infusion beta-lactam antibiotics for over a decade now with excellent outcomes. It is our default for all patients, not just those in the critically ill. But there is one debate that has come up time and time again at our institution, and that's in those critically ill patients that are coming in with, say, septic shock and what you do about first-dose antimicrobials. So with a prolonged infusion, you are getting better time over MIC goals, but it does take a little bit longer to get to your target attainment up front. And in septic shock, where every hour counts, we want to get that target attainment as quickly as possible. So this was an excellent small letter to the editor, but great study done in 2014 that did some PK assessments of Piptazo and Mirapenem. And I just wanted to share this with this group, as most people tuning in are likely ICU-friendly populations, and see what our beta-lactam time-to-goal concentrations are when it comes to patients uh, in septic shock. So on the left here is Piperacillin and Tazobactam. If you give an intermittent infusion over 30 minutes, you reach your 90% concentration probability of the concentration being over the MIC by around four minutes. So it's a very quick onset that you get your therapeutic concentrations with Piptazo intermittent infusion. Versus prolonged infusion, it's a little bit longer because that infusion time isn't as quick because it's being given over four hours. And you can see that you get to your 90% probability of concentration greater than the MIC at 90 minutes. So does that 85 minutes impact clinical care? 
It's completely uncertain at this point. But if you have any hesitation in someone that's coming in with septic shock, I would have no problem giving the first dose over, say, a 30-minute infusion, following it by prolonged infusions for future doses. But that's just Piptazo that has this extended 85-minute span between intermittent infusions and prolonged infusions. If you look at a very similar uh, modeling with miropenem, again, looking at 90% probability of the concentration being over the MIC, the time difference between inter intermittent and prolonged infusions, 30 minutes versus three hours, was less than five to 10, about five to 10 minutes. Will that necessarily make an impact on clinical care? I doubt it. And so for the logistical sake of everything, if you're going to be giving miropenem prolonged infusion, you can likely do it from the get-go. We don't have good data on other beta-lactam antimicrobials like cefepine or ceftazidime to know where they fall in this lag for if you are giving a prolonged infusion. My guess is it's somewhere in between, but I'd love to see that data uh, mapped out so that we can figure out if we should be giving our first doses via intermittent infusion. But outside of that one debate, prolonged infusion beta-lactams is absolutely the way to go at your institution in critically ill patients. I kind of mentioned on this the last slide, but let's let's dive into the literature a little bit about beta-lactam loading doses. So the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines do suggest using loading doses in critically ill patients. The table on this slide references the actually the Vardakis et al. meta-analysis that I talked about a couple slides earlier. Um, of the 17 studies that they looked at, 13 of the studies used loading doses, while four studies did not. You can see in terms of the risk ratios on the right-hand side of the table here, the ones that use loading doses did see a statistically significant mortality benefit, while those that did not use loading doses did not see that same benefit. Now, I will be the first one to give the caveat, though, that this likely didn't make statistical significance because of the hugely wide confidence intervals, because only 190 patients did not receive loading doses in this meta-analysis. But you can do, you do see that those that did receive loading doses did reach statistical significance in terms of that mortality. I don't think this is really much up for debate though in terms of ICU and uh, ID pharmacists, because if you look at a 2017 survey that was published, 88% of infectious diseases pharmacists and 85% of critical care pharmacists recommend a beta-lactam loading dose in critically ill patients. So we talked a, bit, a little bit about beta-lactam loading doses, uh, but let's move on to other antibacterials. There's lots of other antibiotics we can be using uh, in, in certain situations. While beta-lactams are definitely our workhorse in terms of patients that are critically ill, there are other medications in our armamentarium. So in terms of loading doses, they're universally recommended for some of our tetracycline and tetracycline derivatives like minocycline tigacycline, and amatacycline. And also, while we're focusing on antibiotics today, I have to mention that most antifungals are also given a loading dose. But then specifically in the critically ill, loading doses are suggested for patients on vancomycin and hydrophilic Asian agents like beta-lactams, as Brian alluded to earlier, extravascular space increases in sepsis. So a good visual of this that I wanted to highlight for folks on, on this webinar is specifically going back to some FDA briefing document data. Um, this was specifically on omatocycline, which was uh, pretty recently approved for skin and soft tissue infections and pneumonia. And looking at the PK data of on the left, you see graphs of a dose of 450 milligrams given on day one, reaches an AUC of almost 9,000. While 300 milligrams daily 
on day five. So this patient has already received five days of omatocycline 300 milligrams daily, reaches an AUC of 9,267. So you can see by giving a 450 milligram load up front of omatocycline, if tolerated, if the patient doesn't have GI upset with it, can get you to therapeutic concentrations much, much quicker than not giving a loading dose by day one or two versus day five without a loading dose. But let's no PKPD talk can be complete without spending a few slides on vancomycin. So let's start talking about vancomycin loading doses, but then go into the relatively recent updates in terms of guideline recommendations. So the IDSA guidelines were updated uh, very recently uh, in 2020, about, I want to say 18 months ago. Uh, but current guideline recommendations for loading doses specifically are recommended in those that are critically ill or in the ICU, which is the focus of the talk today, require dialysis or renal replacement therapy, or receiving vancomycin continuous infusion therapy. That loading dose recommendation is 20 to 35 milligrams per kilogram times one, but to cap it off at three grams as the total dose. And I know quite a few of our patients do fall over that limit, but three grams is what they recommend as a maximum dose. I will say there are some caveats to what the guidelines recommend though, and that there's been no studies that have been powered to evaluate clinical cure rates in patients that have received loading doses versus those that haven't. And the majority of studies that are retrospective are aiming for troughs greater than 15 milligrams per kilogram as their surrogate outcome versus AUC or clinical outcomes. And we'll go into a little bit of that in the coming slides as to why that would be a caveat. So how do you calculate a vancomycin AUC? And this has been in a debate for 20 years or so now. And the reason that it's been an issue and why we use trough monitoring for so long is that all of these equations are needed to calculate a vancomycin AUC. That's how we calculate a vancomycin AUC at our institution. And I'll be honest, we haven't quite switched over yet because of the amount of calculations that are needed. There are quite a few now publicly available, um, more or less Excel calculators that can be used to do this, and also some other third-party programs that can calculate an AUC for you that I will go through in a, a few slides. But really, I wanted to focus a little bit about the history of vancomycin here um, and why we use trough as a surrogate for AUC. AUC calculations are difficult to do. They still are today. They're much easier than they would be a, would have been 10, 10 years ago. Um, but the reason we use troughs up front is a lot of it comes from this table right in front of you now. The red lines are of my own making here. This was um, uh, an analysis. I'll just orient you to what we were seeing here. The correlation between vancomycin trough and vancomycin AUC. And you can clearly say, see that there is a correlation here in terms of as the trough goes up, so does the vancomycin AUC. And so we knew that an AUC target for vancomycin to be efficacious should be greater than, some studies have said greater than 350, but I would say greater than 400 is the general consensus and what the guidelines have currently recommended. But I did want to talk a little bit about this 2013 paper that looked at troughs of greater than 15 and the associated nephrotoxicity with vancomycin. Looking at the totality of evidence of troughs greater than 15, which you can see the different studies here on the screen in front of you, if troughs are greater than 15, the odds ratio of nephrotoxicity is 
95% confidence interval of 1.95 to 3.65. So you are 2.67 times more likely to develop nephrotoxicity with a trough greater than 15 rather than a trough less than 15. So while some of these patients did fall on the troughs greater than 20 category, I can tell you that a lot of patients were in that 15 to 20 category as well. They didn't do that breakdown, but the 15 to 20 category has higher risks of nephrotoxicity than those with a trough less than 15. So what do we do about that? Well, the new vancomycin guidelines came out in 2020. And so that they recommend that in patients with suspected or definitive serious MRSA infections, an individualized target of the AUC to MIC ratio of 400 to 600, assuming a vanco MIC of one milligram per liter, should be advocated to achieve clinical efficacy while improving patient safety. So how do you estimate an AUC? Well, the guidelines go through it a little bit, but this is my cheat sheet table that I created for our institution when we were trying to figure out how to switch to AUC monitoring in terms of the pros and cons of the different ways to calculate an AUC. There are the PK equations, which I displayed on the screen a couple of pages ago, uh, that can be modified into an Excel calculator of sorts or into your own homegrown program that quite a few institutions across the U.S. have done. And then there's the more abstract Bayesian modeling that has been adopted also by quite a few centers across the United States. Um, in terms of Bayesian modeling has an A priority, uses past population PK data to to basically uh, determine what your patient's PK might be when a level is drawn. So Bayesian modeling for vancomycin, the pros of it are that AUC levels can be assessed within the first 24 hours of therapy. You could get a level after the first dose, say, and plot it on your Bayesian modeling and figure out what your dosage regimen should be. You can use a single level to calculate an AUC, while most of the programs that do Bayesian modeling will tell you that two levels is more accurate. We do have internal data that one level can be almost as good. I prefer two levels, but if it can't be done, one level can be used to calculate an AUC. And Bayesian modeling can also be more accurate in special populations, like those with obesity or fluctuating renal function. And lastly, Bayesian modeling can be, most of the Bayesian modeling platforms can be integrated into your electronic health record. The major con with Bayesian modeling, though, is the cost. It is expensive compared to a homegrown system of PK equations, as you really have to weigh those pro pros with the hospital cost impacted uh, from purchasing one of these. There also may be uh, additional training that's required to understand the software um, because each of the programs does function a little bit differently. In terms of PAK equations, the pros is the obvious, uh, the opposite, that there is no software cost, just the number of admin hours used to create whatever PK equation software that you use locally, whether that's in Excel or one of the freely available online resources. There's minimal software training and maintenance required and equations are usually front-facing. I showed them a couple of slides back. So they can be scrutinized throughout the calculation process and audited versus Bayesian modeling is a little bit harder to see what's going on behind the scenes. The cons though of PK equations uh, in terms of vancomycin AUC calculations is that it requires two levels for calculations. You can't calculate an AUC off of one level. And it provides an AUC calculation estimation only during that sampling period. So just between levels one and two, not in someone that has fluctuating renal function, which is often the case in our critically ill patients. And so it's not adaptive for special populations the same way that Bayesian modeling is. 
I, I will give the caveat though that this is a critically ill patient talk that we don't have a ton of data about using Bayesian modeling in critically ill patients, uh, but we are hoping that that is forthcoming. And I, I do trust it to an extent if patients don't have completely fluctuating renal function. I'll spend the last portion of my talk talking about our third in the, we've talked about time-dependent killers. We've talked about AUC or total uh, concentration-dependent killers. Now we'll talk about concentration-dependent in terms of aminoglycosides and extended interval dosing. So on the left here is a different study than the Vanco study, but as you can see, very similar in the way that they did it, of looking at a correlation between different uh, types of pharmacodynamics versus the amount of log kill in a thigh model. And you can see that the 24-hour AUC MIC and peak to MIC for aminoglycosides is pretty close to similar. So whether aminoglycosides you can use AUC to MIC or concentration or peak to MIC um, could be up for debate. And there's quite a few good papers on actually that specific debate. But aminoglycosides are definitely more concentration dependent than time dependent, which you can see in the pink dots on the left here. And I, I can't talk about aminoglycosides pharmacodynamics without bringing up and calling out the Hartford nomogram uh, by the group out of Hartford that was published originally, I believe, in 1995 that our institution has basically been using since. Um, it's a way to we don't, while we don't use aminoglycosides a lot in practice anymore, thankfully, because we have safer options available, when we do need to pull them up out, you want to make sure that your dosing is appropriate as soon as you can, which the Hartford nomogram helps us that after you use an extended interval, 7 mg per kg gentamicin or tobramycin dose, and also correlations for amikacin, it is used as well, not on the same uh, table, but similar, uh, after one dose and a level around 8 hours, or between eight and 12 hours, ideally 10 hours after that first dose, you can estimate what the frequency should be going forward. And you don't need to wait for a few doses in to get to steady state, which you could argue with extended interval aminoglycosides, you're not really getting to steady state because you're trying to clear out the dose, every single dose to get to less than one on your troughs to then redose it later. Uh, but this was extremely helpful in order to optimize aminoglycoside dosing uh, over the last two decades. But, and let's just talk a little bit about therapeutic drug monitoring. I talked about the Hartford nomogram for a second there, but why do we do extended interval, extended interval dosing over our Q8 hour dosing? Well, it really, it maximizes bactericidal activity and decreases the selection of resistant subpopulations. And it increases survival in patients with gram-negative bacteremia and pneumonia is where the data has clinically been proven to show an increased survival. And so this, again, kind of similar to beta-lactams before and showing that survival benefit with prolonged infusion beta-lactams, we've seen a survival benefit with aminoglycosides and extended interval dosing in those with GNR bacteremia or pneumonia. So our goal, gentamicin and tobramycin peaks at the site of infection are ideally an MIC ratio of 10 to 1. You want 10 times the amount of aminoglycoside at the site of infection as the MIC. We want troughs less than 1 microgram per ml. Then this comes from the toxicity standpoint. If you have troughs above 1, you can have neurotoxicity, uh, nephro, sorry, nephrotoxicity and ototoxicity, uh, hearing loss. Um, and then I will bring up, though, the how I showed that both peaks 
and AUCs seem to correlate for aminoglycosides, there is a thought that we should be switching to AUC to MIC for aminoglycosides. And we do that at our site specifically for cystic fibrosis patients um, with a target AUC ratio of 80 to 120. And throughout my talk today, I talked about cefidrocol before, omatocycline before. Let's bring it to a novel antimicrobial agent as to where the drug companies are kind of thinking about this PK stuff. And the perfect example is with plazomycin. So plazomycin, the CARE trial, was for carbapenem-resistant enterobacterialis, a randomized control trial that was recently published. They actually, in that study for CRE, targeted a plazomycin MIC of 210 to 315. So they were looking specifically at MICs or AUCs rather than troughs for efficacy. Now, I will say the plazomycin UTI trial looked at troughs in terms of their therapeutic drug monitoring. But AEC to MIC may be the wave of the future for aminoglycosides. But speaking of aminoglycosides, let's have a slide talking about post-antibiotic effect. So most people probably don't know, but all antibacterials actually produce a post-antibiotic effect in vitro when susceptible gram-positive bacteria are exposed, so specifically with gram-positives. But then prolonged post-antibiotic effects for gram-negative bacilli are seen only with antibacterials that inhibit protein synthesis or nucleic acid synthesis. So the one we think about for post-antibiotic effect is aminoglycosides, but also fluoroquinolones, tetracyclines, and macrolides. Funnily enough, though, neutrophils double the duration of the gram-negative bacilli post-antibiotic effect for aminoglycosides and fluoroquinolones, but not beta-lactams. So we can't expect much of a post-antibiotic effect with beta-lactams, but your protein synthesis or nucleic acid synthesis inhibitors absolutely can. And the one we think about this for specifically is aminoglycosides, where we're pushing the dosing really high up front with extended interval dosing, but trying to clear it out completely before we get to the next dose with troughs less than one. At our institution, we often go for troughs less than assay to prevent toxicity, knowing that there is going to be some amount of post-antibiotic effect in place for these gram-negative infections, especially when patients have neutrophils and are not neutropenic. But I will wrap up. We talked today about vancomycin and aminoglycoside therapeutic drug monitoring, but I wanted to bring in and bring to other folks' attentions that there are other aspects of therapeutic drug monitoring that could be available in the future. The most important in my mind that I hope we will have at some point in the near future at our institution is beta-lactam therapeutic drug monitoring. The traditional goal for therapeutic TDM in beta-lactams is 40 to 75% of free time over the MIC. So during the dosing interval, at least 40 to 70% of the time is over the, the MIC. And there, there was a prospective study actually of 248 patients with infection treated with beta-lactams that 16% did not achieve greater than 50% free time over MIC, those patients were 32% less likely to have a positive clinical outcome with an odds ratio of 0.68, 95% confidence interval of 0.52 to 0.91. So we don't have a ton of studies in terms of beta-lactam TDM, but this is a great one to support having greater than 50% free time over the MIC. Now, I will say that's traditional in terms of beta-lactams, more recent PK studies often look at 100% of free time over the MIC. And some people have been really ambitious in looking at 100% free time over four times the MIC. So making sure the entire interval, you're more than four times the MIC in terms of beta-lactam exposure. That's uber aggressive, but it does seem to yield good outcomes. Then we have linazolid, 
Linazolid is an interesting one that in the last five years or so, there have been studies that have looked at linazolid and do we need to dose adjust it in certain populations? In general, recommendations are to just use 600 milligrams Q12 in most situations, maybe 600 Q24 in mycobacterial infections, uh, but not no needs for dose adjustments. When we have more recent papers that maybe we need to increase the dosing in obesity, or maybe we need to reduce the dosing in renal impairment. We don't yet know, but there are some therapeutic drug monitoring data out there that show a concentration minimum should be between two and seven micrograms per ml for both efficacy and toxicity of myelosuppression. Then we have fluoroquinolones. We had those on the very first slide I presented as AUC to MIC agents. Our goal, free drug AUC over MIC is greater than 80, and we want C-maxes of greater than 8 to 12 times the MIC. And I'll just say these are just three of the ones that I think about that we don't have access to on a regular basis, but sometimes I wish I did in these critically ill populations. But there are probably many others as well. Where there is a will, there is a way. If you have a lab nearby that is willing to do antimicrobial TDM, I'd encourage you to study it and publish it so that we can enact this in more drugs outside of our vancomycin, aminoglycosides, and antifungals. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ASHB Official and thank you for all you do for your patients. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.